Hey everybody, welcome to season two of the Mixmasters podcast. I'm your host, Steve Litcher, and for those not familiar, I'm the touring front of house engineer for Stitched Up Heart. Working with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet an incredible number of really talented people, and I wanted to introduce you to them. I wanted to let you hear their stories and learn from their experiences. This is really your chance to listen in on behind the scenes talk and to learn from some of the best in the business. I have to give a huge shout out to my pal, Merritt Goodwin, for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's also an extremely talented composer. Give him a follow on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin or on Instagram at Merritt Goodwin Official. Now let's bring up the faders and jump into this episode of Mixmasters Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of Mixmasters, where my guest for the day is Ross Landis. I was lucky enough to meet Ross while on tour with Asking Alexandria and Nothing More. Ross is the front of house engineer for Nothing More, and I was serving as the monitor engineer for Asking Alexandria. A lot of things happened on that tour. We'll talk about them in this episode. But long story short, I ended up switching from Asking Alexandria over to Atreyu, where I've been their front of house engineer ever since. Been really busy with them, and that's why there's been a long delay between podcast releases here. Full disclosure, Ross and I recorded this podcast back in July of 2022, I believe, and we're just getting a chance to release it here in December of 2022. But fret not, I have additional episodes recorded, and I just have to finish editing them, and I'll get them released. So there should be a couple of more podcasts coming out uh, early 2023. Hopefully this will tide you over for a little bit. And I really look forward to seeing everybody. I hope you enjoy this episode. Ross is a really fun guy. We talk about how he got started in the music business, his control package, microphones that he was using on tour. He's got a slightly different uh, selection of microphones than what we're all used to seeing. And then we share a lot of tour stories back and forth, and there are some fun ones in there. So enjoy this episode. Everybody have a great holiday season, and I will see you all very soon. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mixmasters. I am joined today by Ross Landis, and Ross is the front of house engineer for a band called Nothing More. He's also done some things with Bad Wolves and other other musical entities. But Ross, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So a little backstory on how I met Ross. We I was on the Asking Alexandria Nothing More tour, and Ross and Andrew Crow, Andrew did uh, monitors for Nothing More. Ross was front of house. And I got to meet them a little bit ahead of the tour actually starting because Ross went out on a D-Live for the first time, I believe, with Nothing yep. More. And Crow did the same thing. So uh, Nothing More was a full D-Live front of house monitors set up. And Asking Alexandria had an S6L out front and then D-Live at monitors because I was doing monitors. So it was nice to uh, get to bond over the D-Live a little bit and share some experiences. But enough about that. We'll talk about that in just a minute here. But Ross, I'd like to learn a little bit about your history and past and how you got started in this crazy business. Uh, Were you a musician prior to starting to do sound? Tell me a little bit about what got you interested in music. What did you start out with and how did you end up sort of where you're at today? So if we go back and we go like, I mean, childhood back, I'd say in like fifth grade, I think it was, I got a trumpet for the very first time and I played trumpet for, I don't know, about a year or so, like six months to a year. And then I just kind of, you know, at that time, I think I might've been a little too young or something, or just maybe my interests weren't all the way there uh, with it. 
So yeah, basically did that for like a year. And then it wasn't until I got into a car accident when I was 15 years old that kind of spawned my um, music career because I suffered a level four head trauma uh, where I was in the hospital for roughly two months um, going through a bunch of rehab and all kinds of stuff. So like, and at that time I had played hockey and I'd played a little bit of football. Don't know why. Cause I'm not that big of a dude <laughs> basketball. I was never that good at that. You know what I mean? Whatever, but you know, just trying stuff, doing different things. So after this car accident and all my sports basically being taken away, I then got my first guitar and I started playing guitar very heavily at that point. Um, I, tried to start bands in high school nothing ever worked out you know what I mean blah 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 and then it wasn't until my cousin called uh, my grandfather and told him about a production school up in Minneapolis so I then moved to Minneapolis in 2004 I went to this production school that actually uh, Andy actually attended to but about three or four years before me yeah Basically, at that point, I started working uh, in clubs about, I'd say, four years after I graduated because that wasn't really my main focus. I did start a band and actually get a band going in the Twin Cities. And, you know, we were just, you know, kind of about to start the tour and then all the stuff kind of fell apart. And then, you know, um, at that point, like that's really what my engineering actually really started taking a hold because I was kind of tired of the whole band thing and trying to do all that stuff because I had spent quite a few years trying to get a you know decent band going and doing everything and then you know I guess it just all kind of took off from there so what style or genre of music were you into what what was your band's format we were basically like uh trying to go along the lines of like a kill switch engage on earth, but yet had a little bit of like gent style to us, like after the burial born of Osiris, you know, type stuff. Yeah. So it was kind of, it was heavier. Cool. Well, yeah, that's, that's definitely my genre that I prefer. And I think you're probably in the same boat there. Yep. You mentioned uh, crow going to school, the same, the same school that you went to. Yep. How did you know crow prior to that? Um, I actually, I didn't. So here's a, here's how I met Andy. I got a job at this club in St. Paul called station four. And back in the day, it was just known for rock and metal, but it was like the most glorified punk rock club in the freaking world. It was so awesome. Like, I'm not kidding you. The, the place was just awesome. And, and it was awesome because you literally, excuse my language for saying this podcast, but you could take a shit on the stage and go play there the very next week, the next day if you wanted. You know what I mean? Like it was that, it was just like just what it was. So I got my job there and uh, two guys by the name of Justin Benicky and Anthony Columbus took me under their wing and started teaching me uh, even further from what, you know, I had already learned in production and stuff like that at the, at the, the production school up here. And then Andy was out on Guns N' Roses and he had come back off of his, I think like the first or second run he had done with Guns. And I had kind of just started there. I'd probably been working there for like, I don't know, six months to six to eight months, somewhere in there. And I come walking in the club because Anthony and I were going to do a sh uh, show that day. And Andy, Andy's behind the bar pouring himself a soda. And he looks at me and goes, oh, so you're the kid that got brought in here under my radar and, you know, blah, 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 blah. I can't remember exactly how he put it, but basically like shook me. I was like, oh, no, who's this guy? You know, sitting there, like, what the hell? And uh, 
after talking, you know, he's like, well, Anthony's told me good things about you and that, you know, like you work hard and stuff like that. So he's like, since you weren't technically brought in by me and this is my club, he's like for the next two and a half to three weeks that I'm home, you're in this club every single day that I'm working and I'm in this club every single day that you're working. So let me know your schedule. I'll let you know mine because we're going to, we're going to really know, we'll learn how to mix and do stuff. And it was funny too, because I remember the first show that we did together. I, I was there probably about 15, 20 minutes before he had arrived, you know, cause I was kind of like, you know, shaking a little bit. I was like, oh man, this dude, like I had heard about him, like everything like that. And I was like, oh, I'm going to get my ass handed to me. And, <laughs> and I did. Uh, <laughs> Cause he comes walking in the club after I'm behind the, the desk and we had a K2 in there, a Soundcraft K2 old school analog desk, 40 channel. And it was all single uh, insert points on the back. So I'm sitting back there hooking up my inserts, you know, all my comps, my gates for the day. And Andy comes walking in, he pulls off his motorcycle helmet and he goes, oh, thanks, man. I was like, for what? And he's like, for hooking up all my comps and gates for me. That was awesome. Thank you. And I go, well, yeah, I do this every day. And he goes, no, you don't. He goes, not today, you don't. And I went, what? And he goes, we're going to learn how to mix from right here. He goes, I want to know you can actually mix from EQ before you even touch a compressor or a gate. And I went, okay. You know, and mind you, this club is completely concrete walls, concrete floor, tin ceiling all the way up and down freaking had literally just steel poles running up and down the center, like an acoustical nightmare, (laughs) but yeah, I did learn, you know what I mean? I did learn a lot from him and still have, and also other guys too, from that club and everything like that as well. So what are some of the things you took away from learning to mix without any of the tools that we all rely on today? So like, Back in the day when I was talking to Pooch about things, he was like, mic selection, mic placement, EQ, and gain are the the four, you know, foundations. Not necessarily in that order, but what did you really start to pick up on when you got put into that hot seat? Yeah, I mean, that's, I guess those would be the main, the main uh, points to take away from that is, yeah, I mean, your microphone selection, your, um, your EQ and how you're going to do stuff. Because I mean, it wasn't just national acts we were mixing. Sometimes there'd be a local band come in and this guy had more gaff tape on his freaking Tom than freaking a a head showing. You know what I mean? And like you, you really, it, it makes you rethink what you're doing because I mean, if you think about it, that stuff wasn't always available anyway. So it really kind of teaches you a different way of mixing. Where like, I'm not afraid even today to walk into a club. If somebody goes, Hey man, <clears throat> you know, if it was an all, all analog setup and they're like, Hey dude, like you can't touch anything. The headliner has this and that I'd be like, okay, cool, whatever. We'll figure it out. It'll be fine. You know? And it, I think it kind of builds a different confidence in you too that you know like i mean one of the other first clubs that i started at literally the only thing that they had for mics in in the venue were 57s aside from 58s for vocals and i literally had to use 57s on everything and it's like if i showed up in a club it wouldn't be my 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 most favorite day (laughs) but if i showed up to a club and i had to do it you know what i mean i've done it so it's like i i could do it but tools are nice but at the, at, I think at the beginning of any mix, you really have to pay attention to A, what you're going to use, you know, and then B, your gain staging all the way through no matter what. And I think that that does help 
teach that for sure. Yeah. You brought back some memories for me too. The first band that I really mixed was in the Twin Cities area, Eau Claire, Northern Wisconsin. And we had an Allen and Heath uh, 16 channel board and it had, I think, three EQ knobs on it. We had no outboard EQ, nothing. And I think I had like 457s and 458s and that was it. Yep. And maybe, maybe like an SPX 990 or a, or a TC Electronics M1 or D2, something like that for a little zazz. <laughs> if the gig paid really well, we rented one for those types of shows. But yeah, yeah we didn't correct. even have an effects unit. So it was just crazy to, yeah. you know, when you think about where we are today and like the DLive where you've got Dynates on every channel that, oh, you know, yeah a plethora of compressors that you can choose from gates. Yeah. But then you, you go back to those earlier days and that wasn't the case. So no. Well, and, and you know, like even working at station four where we had an entire rack of like comps and gates and all that stuff, you still like, you know, if you had a tour come in and he took, <clears throat> you know, 24 to 26 of the, the 40 channels. And then he took like, you know, let's say three quarters to almost, you know, you know, seven eighths of everything in the rack, you still had to, you had to lit, turn this acoustical nightmare into something, you know what I mean? And you just had to work with it. So it just, it was what it was. I'm glad that we both had those experiences of mixing analog. Cause I think it helped, you know, helps in the long run. Oh yeah. I'm also sort of envious of people that have only ever mixed on digital because they don't know that pain necessarily. Yeah. 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 They're like, well, I mean, I could just do this and I can do that and I can do that and I can do this. It's like, yeah, but you had this. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely uh, definitely paints a different picture for sure. So, yeah. And you can dig yourself into a hole pretty quickly with all of the gadgets and gizmos. And I find myself oh, yeah. going back to my mix or my workflow, you know, after a tour and taking a really hard look into it and going, do I really need to do what I did here, you know, and then listen back on a multi-track and either go, yep, I did, or nope, I didn't. And then, you know, get rid of it. So I've already been pondering that too. And it's like, I, I just wish that more people in the twin cities actually did have D lives. Cause I don't even know if there is a desk here, <clears throat> you know what I mean? For like, just to go in and tip like, Hey man, here's a couple hundred bucks today. I want to tip the desk and freaking do a little bit of work. You know what I mean? And it's just, that's, that's one of the downfalls, you know, of at least that, because it's still not a prevalent desk. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just not, it's not used as widely as like for say avid or, or really basically avid <laughs> or some digico really you know yeah <clears throat> but but as far as like production houses and in, in some areas so yeah it's funny uh you go to a place like soundcheck or sound image in nashville and they've got a ton of d lives but then you go anywhere else in the country and and you'll see them here and there although i do start i'm starting to see them more and more on tour so i think they're gaining some some headway there oh for sure and i mean i think a lot of the a lot of it too is like people just didn't really trust it. <clears throat> and I mean, I'll be honest, man, I was a little shaky taking it out. I was like, I don't know, you know? And then after actually getting out on it, I went through a few phases with the desk and how, you know, like my workflow and everything like that. And then I just kind of, this whole tour, I just kept, 
I really just kept changing a lot of stuff. Like, like the main nuts and bolts were there, but it's like, I know this can be better in so many ways. So how do I make it better? You know what I mean? And, and where do I take it from here? You know, and just kept working, <laughs> you know, I mean, you probably saw me a couple of days. I was out of my desk with my headphones on just like, gotta figure this out, you know, and figure out where I want to go with this. So, but they're sweet. I love those desks. They're super, super cool. Yeah, I definitely saw you working on it and, you know, trying to learn things and trying to implement different things, which is awesome. I wish I could have done that more with the monitors for asking Alexandria, but I got their mix the way they liked it. And I didn't want to really, you know, do any more crazy stuff while out on the road. I tried a few things here and there and, and they most of the time liked it, but it's such a different mindset doing monitors. And this was my first monitor tour. So I was just really trying not to disrupt the Apple cart and make sure that everything worked and sounded, you know, the way they wanted it to sound. So I was jealous when I saw you out there working with multi-tracks and I was. If I was in your position though, you know, like I wouldn't have, you know what I mean? It's, it's like once they are hearing what they want to hear, it's very like minute stuff. If I were to change anything in their ears, stuff like that, just cause you don't want to, yeah, you don't want to disrupt the flow of what's going on. Cause if you've got five dudes coming off stage at you after going, what did you do? <laughs> you know, fail and maybe even fired and sent home, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was my number one nightmare or, you know, was worrying about something not going the way that they wanted it to. I did get most of them changed over to stereo mixes on the tour. So that was a, a win. Yeah. A couple of the guys didn't like it in stereo for some reason. They wanted to go back to mono. So it is what it is. Yeah, that's, I don't know. I would, I, I would always want mine in stereo. I would not want to hear it in mono, you know? I mean, there's just so much more space and it'll just perceive larger than just straight up the pipe, but, you know. Yeah, again, you know, it's like I, I didn't always necessarily like what I was hearing, but they liked what they were hearing. So, you know, hands off and, and just let it ride. Yeah. All right, so we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about the transition from fourth station to how did you go from being a house guy to getting into touring with bands and who was the first uh, band that you sort of toured the nation with? So that's kind of a long, uh, another long story. So I obviously working at station four, there were a lot of touring guys that came out of there and out of that house um that were you know obviously connections for me and when i got done when station four closed in 2012 i actually went to work for a different company or not company but different club in town called mill city nights which is an aeg club and our friend uh, like our mutual friend that also did do some stuff at station four and did tour uh ben melby uh, basically like took a lot of us from station four over to that club. And I worked there kind of on and off until probably 2000. I think that one closed in like 16. And I kind of went through a weird phase for a while too. Cause I almost completely got out of engineering music, everything. Like I started training in mixed martial arts and doing all this other crazy stuff. And <clears throat> I, I had still kept my, like, we'll say my toe in the pool, you know what I mean? But like, not not like I should have. And then I will leave the band nameless that I was called out to do, but I took my first kind of like fly date, which was actually kind of my first really like major introductory to 
touring gig i'll say like aside from doing smaller regional bands just around the midwest um and i flew into a very very large festival and i got stuck on the s6l before anybody had seen it and it was thrown on the main stage at um chicago open air and i had a lot of mixes i think i had like 13 or 14 mixes on stage uh, for these guys never heard them never heard them before like i'd heard their music but never actually heard them got a rehearsal anything they had i think fired a monitor guy um i got my name thrown in the hat from a couple guys up here that knew you know their tour manager so i fly out and as andy will tell you you're not a real roadie until you've at least been fired once and (laughs) i flew into chicago open air i do this show did not end well um ended up getting fired that night um and then it was kind of weird because they rehired me the next day and i finished out the rest of the flight or the rest yeah it was the rest of the fly dates remixed their entire show on the fly at a sound check before we played the next night and then i received a hug from the lead singer after that and him apologizing to me for our face-to-face yelling and screaming at each other sort of situation that happened because i'm like you know this whole situation right so then i come back from doing that um i had probably like two months off and then funny enough actually my first national nationwide tour was actually with nothing more and i wasn't doing front of house i was doing monitors at the time and i got called uh by a buddy who was doing front of house for him and their monitor guy had quit and they needed a guy now so i basically got a phone call at like 4 p.m that evening from management and was on a flight at 4 a.m to flint michigan to do my first show at the machine shop and actually they about killed me that first night uh they have this thing called the basinator and i didn't even have like a chance to really like dive in on this band a ton of what they were doing at the time but they have this steel contraption of all the steel contraptions that they have that it literally, they mount a base in it and they can throw it around and it literally does revolution, circular revolutions like this, and they can do different stuff with it. And at this time, and you've seen what we have on stage, Johnny was on a wired microphone. And so he was always getting tangled up in Drumtron. And I ran out in the middle of the bass solo to go fix his microphone cable and like no one had briefed me on this or anything and mark went to throw it and as mark threw it dan saw me run out start fixing the cable and dan literally grabbed the thing like this caught it and it was basically like right here and they have a demonstration online too about it that basically like it'll crush your skull if you get hit by it like it's 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 (laughs) oh wow yeah so Um, but yeah, that was actually my first, uh, national tour was actually with them. And that would have been in 16. So, and I start, like I said, I started on monitors and I did two tours at monitors with them until moving to front of house. What were you mixing monitors on back then? Do you remember what, what the desk was? An X32. What were they using at front of house then? An M32. Oh, step up. Yeah. Yeah. Fractional. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, and yeah, I think they rode on that audio package for quite some time. 
you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it, it's what fit their budget at the time and they could own it and then not have to worry about certain stuff. And, you know, it actually did. I'll be, I'll be actually be honest. That thing held up. Let's see. They bought that. in I think late 15, early 16, and it held up until 19, almost 20 when they were, you know, you know, actually no 19 would have been, I think the last show that they did when they did uh not fest in Mexico city. M32 and X32 are are great platforms. I just sort of joke, you know, because after being on something like the D Live or a Digico or whatever, you yeah, you look back at the M32 and you're like, wow, how did I pull off those shows on that? <laughs> exactly. But you know what? Uh, well, and it's funny too, because like I never thought about implementing waves and doing things like that until being on that desk and just not and just being like. I want a little more. And I, even when I had the waves out there, like I was running minimal, minimal stuff. It was basically more for the multi-band compression and dynamic EQ than it was anything else. You know, everything else was basically still off the desk. So. Yeah. It's funny. I did the same exact thing with stitched up heart on my first national tour with them. I took my M32 compact. I took my wave server and I tried to use F6 C6, you know, on a couple of things. But without fail, F6, C6, and my wave server would crash, usually right before the show started for some reason. Oh, yeah. So a lot of shows, I, I couldn't rely on it. So I, I just stopped carrying waves at all and, and just trying to do it all on the desk mm-hmm. and then made the jump back over to the D-Live. So and haven't looked back since. I got rid of all my wave stuff because the D-Live just does it all you know, pretty well in the yeah. box. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I was actually going to uh implement the waves with the d live until i saw what the d live had and actually got on it and i was like there's just no need <clears throat> you're just adding a fail point you know what i mean like so just leave it at home yeah yeah i still i still own it in the event that i do want to go out like and if there's a different you know either if we ended up did changing which i don't think will happen because honestly everybody's really really satisfied with the d live but um I mean, if I took a different gig for an interim and they were using an Avid or something like that, I'd probably still take my wave stuff. That's why I hold on to it. But yeah, as far for right now, it just kind of sits down on the desk and that's it, you know, server and all. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think you didn't take any wave stuff with you on this last run. I don't remember seeing a server or anything just a WSG card in the back of the uh, Allen and Heath because it makes it easier to multi-track and everything like that. And they actually recommend it. You know, that was that actually came down when from even Sean. You know, he's like, I recommend using the WSG card over doing the Dante stuff. Yeah, I have Dante and WSG and, and I'll take WSG yeah. all day long. Even though it's more expensive, the card is more expensive. The license for, you know, Super Grid is more expensive, but... I'll take it all day over Dante. Me and Dante do not oh, get yeah. along. <laughs> so. Yeah. Dante is great when it works, uh, but there's a lot of like, I feel like black box type of stuff where I just don't really know what it's trying to do or how it's doing it. Yeah. And uh, sound grid, I just plug it in and it works and I don't ever look twice at it. Yeah. That's basically why sound grid, I think takes the cake with it, you know, on a, on a, in a lot of instances we'll say so. So, okay, so that takes us up to nothing more. Let's talk a little bit about this most recent tour. So it was a co-headliner for people who aren't familiar and don't uh, pay close attention to what Ross and I are doing on a daily basis. How dare you, by the way. 
<laughs> but yeah, it was a co-headliner, so that had some unique challenges uh, in and of itself, club level and theater level tours, and then you had a DLive uh, S5000 out front. Yep. How did you go about prepping for the tour? What were some of the things that you did since it was going to be the first time for you on that platform? And, you know, I'm sure you've done co-headliners in the past. Well, was there anything logistically or technologically that you had to adjust for in this scenario? No, not really, because we were all pretty, you know, contained between the two packages as far as bands go. The main thing that I did before even leaving for obviously rehearsals and stuff is we we scheduled that day with uh, Sean to go out and demo the desk, load our show files, which I'm happy I did because there were things that I even had to backtrack on in my show file once I loaded it, you know what I mean, to kind of be like, okay, this is already going to create a problem or this is already, you know, I've already done something I shouldn't have with it and just kind of rethink what I was going to do. Actually, what I tried to do before I even showed up for rehearsal was kind of start a little bit more open. I kind of knew what I wanted to use, you know what I mean? Just because some of those units in there are modded after obviously, you know, awesome analog pieces like the dbs one or dbx 160 stuff like that like you know i knew i was going to use that more than likely on my kick drum and then probably my bass guitar you know stuff like that but at the end of the day i think i ended up changing a lot of stuff too so throughout tour just because it's like you know play with it and just see if you can get better tones and get better better sounds out of stuff uh my main thing though was having my format to what i thought i wanted my workflow to be you know, to look like on the desk. And it was kind of funny because after I got there and got to Nashville and started uh, rehearsing, I think I changed my workflow like twice because I was like, yeah, I thought I'd like this, but I actually don't. And I mean, obviously it's easy. It's customizable. You just kind of click and drag and move stuff around. Um, So I rearranged it, I think twice before leaving. And then even out on the road, I changed my format a couple of times with it too, just because, you know, it can always be better. You know what I mean? And I don't like to just leave something if I'm not feeling it. Cause that's, I feel like that's a lot of mixing in general anyway, too, is like, you got to feel it and you got to have, you got to be able to stay in the groove the whole time. And if I can't stay in the groove, obviously, you know what I mean? You're not gonna, you're not going to perform the best, you know, and get things done like you want to. So, but yeah, I mean, it was awesome. Cause we ended up taking out two, we actually took out two S five thousands. There was one at front of house, one at monitors, and yeah, it was great. I mean, total great experience. Andy, Andy had, and if you look at Andy's desk versus mine, they look completely different. Obviously he's running monitors, but I'm talking even just the way that we set stuff up, everything. And that's kind of cool to kind of walk up and you kind of see mine and then you see his, and he would kind of look at me like, why'd you do that? And I'm like, well, because, you know, and I have my explanation for why I did certain stuff, you know, blah, 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 you know? So, but it was just kind of, it was actually, you know, super cool and actually really fun to be able to take those out and actually you know, really put them to the test on this run. And you used a DM48, DM64? DM64, yeah. And then we both had DM0s because I think you have to have a DM0 per desk. That's a great question. I think you technically only need one per desk, but that allows you to sort of do the uh, splitting of the preamps and having your own independent gain controls. And then... yeah. If you wanted to fire up your desk and do virtual sound check, you didn't have to be connected to the stage rack in order for that to happen. So yeah, 
That's a really great question. Sean, if you're listening, uh, text us and let us know if you need two DM zeros or just one. Yeah, bang, I, I don't know if it was Bangs or who ended up telling Andy that you had to have two of them. So I don't know. <clears throat> and I don't know if that also came downwind of sound image too and what they were doing. I don't know. But I, but yeah, it was cool though. And it was cool to have both. And you, I had that self-tipping desk that was interesting and also had a screen go out because of that but you know that was also interesting too (laughs) we should talk a little bit about that because there was some interesting things that happened on the tour and by interesting i mean good and interesting bad uh both ways but yeah i think uh your front of house console was on a self-tipping case and was it somewhere around uh madison or just before madison they started having issues with the screen turning itself intermittently. It was before we, I think the first time that the screen didn't turn on was in, didn't we play Oklahoma city? Yeah. Sure. Yep. And I think it was in Oklahoma city because um, yeah. Cause I remember we were getting ready to do line check and I turned the desk on, you know, getting everything fired up. Uh, all of a sudden it didn't boot up. So then I called Sean Sean's like, well, just turn it off, turn it back on. And I did that like five times. And then that didn't, that didn't work. So we ended up having to pull off the, the, the grill on the back and I had to basically push on all the ribbon cables. And that was the first time that it happened. And then everything turned back on. I think it happened a couple more times. And then finally it was when Andy was out at front of house in Madison, where the screen just went dead in the middle of your set <laughs> And he goes, uh, you might want to make your way to front of house. Your screen went dead again. And I'm like, oh, great. So I come out there and then that's when they arranged for me to get the new console. Cause I, from what Andy was told, if that screen starts going dead, that that console is basically about to take a dive and that shouldn't happen. Cause those are soldered in and there's no way that that can happen. So, yeah. And I think the theory was that the self tipping case, the way that it secures the console, it was just transmitting all of the vibration and shock from transit into the console and apparently may have caused some internal issues with it. But I don't know. I never heard yeah. anything beyond that. Yeah. More than likely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The self tippers are, are really awesome because you don't have to lift anything, but the way they are sort of designed, it does transmit a lot of energy into the desk. Yeah. And I mean, they're not directly like shock mounted. I mean, the, the, the case is shock mounted, but it's not like the desk is actually in there shock mounted. They're kind of just floating around in space, which isn't, you know, the best. So yeah, they're not isolated. They're just sort of, they have that direct link to the bottom of the case and, and whatever the case hits goes through and hits the console. So, but yeah, sound or sound image, uh, got you guys a, uh, replacement like lickety split so that wasn't too bad yeah we ended up i think getting it when we were in la i think yeah it was la yeah house of blues that's right all right well let's change gears here for a second we'll stop talking about the d live i know people probably are tired of me raving about the d live on every podcast but i do truly love it so talk to me Ooh. a little <laughs> you're you're a convert as well. Yeah, it's awesome. But anyway, yeah, we'll quit that. We'll quit that. I'll split my non-royalty check with you that I don't get. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> yeah. All right. Sean, Sean. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about microphones. You guys carry an Audio Technica package and you don't really see that every day uh on the road, especially. 
mostly Shure and Sennheiser. But the Audio Technicas, I got to say, they sounded great. Uh, your mixes were always great every night. But talk to me a little bit about how you got into the Audio Technica and uh, take us through your mic package, if you will. So in, I think it was like 2012 when I still played in my own band. Uh, that's actually, um, you know, right around the time <clears throat> that I had met. Well, actually, I'd met Andy before that, but this was right around the time that I decided to f- buy my my own microphone and stuff like that and do stuff. And that was due to walking into a club and just having a horrendous experience trying to sing into something else that was just not not good and um after after that i bought a 6100 um and then i i loved it and i i that microphone sounds great and then i ended up uh using it on johnny in 2017 the summer of 17 actually uh, cause I had it in my mic pack and, you know, he wasn't very satisfied with some of the other stuff he was using. So, uh, we decided, I was like, Hey man, you know, here, try this. This was my personal one, but I only used it a couple times before the band broke up. So, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. I've spit into it very, very minimally <laughs> and it's been clean since then. But anyway, um, so after Johnny actually really loved that microphone, um, I got back in contact with Andy about getting hooked up with a rep there. And he put me in contact with Roxanne Ricks, who is amazing. Like she's just by far, she, I, I don't know. She's just, she's a very, very good hearted person. And she definitely takes care of everybody that's, you know, um, you know, put in front of her and everything like that. So I, I can't speak enough, you know, kind words about Roxanne. So that summer so we'll rewind just for a second that summer i bought a uh, i bought four of the atm 230s which are basically the new and they're the newer version of the ae 23 so they basically redid that series but now it's atm versus ae um and i i bought those and then i believe i bought an ae 250 and or i mean atm 250 sorry and then I bought a pair of 4041s and I, I ended up buying those. And then after that, I used those over the summer before going back to doing the fall run. And then I, I got in contact with Roxanne and then I didn't want Johnny on a wired microphone anymore. Cause it was just treacherous. You know, you've seen the guy, he runs around like a freaking gorilla on stage. So, you know, we, it was time to make a move to a wireless microphone and, um, Roxanne sent me a, uh, 61, a wire, a wireless 6,100. And then also sent me the old 3000 series, um, unit for it too, which was great. And then basically, from there, you know, because I'd already owned stuff, like if I had a microphone go down or anything like that, she would just, um, you know, fix it, replace it, send it back to me. Um, the other thing too, like, oh, I actually, I had four 4041s. So yeah, that's actually what I was using. And then I wanted to demo some stuff and she's like, what do you, what would you like to demo for this run? And I was like, well, Hey, you know, send me a pair of 3000, send me, a pair of uh, 5100s and uh i'll try these i think they're atm 650s they're like the they're like the uh basically like a 57 you know or an i5 but it's their version of it and 
yeah and then the the relationship just developed from there and uh continued to grow and blossom and i've also used um audio technica with other bands as well i used it with um bad wolves and i've also used it with uh asking alexandria as well so yeah i mean it's just they i've been taken care of by roxanne you know what i mean and honestly i haven't had an audio technical microphone you know when you get into like the pro line and stuff like that and all their their pro stuff that i've went uh, with you know what i mean or i don't like that I've put some stuff on things where I've been like, eh, I think there's a better microphone maybe for that and maybe rethink that. But, you know, I've always been a pretty huge fan, but it was kind of funny. So this run, we changed it up. So I used to use all Audio Technica. And then this run, the only thing we really changed was the snare configuration. And then we changed what we were using on the toms. And so actually on the snare, I used to use a uh, 650, an ATM 650, and then a 450 on the bottom, or I would, yeah, and actually, yeah, it was a 450 on the bottom. So this run, we went to two 5100s top and bottom, which was super cool, and it sounded awesome. And then actually on the toms, because Andy owned them, we actually went to Earthworks, and we used the Earthworks, and then on the floor tom, we used a, a 98. So that was the only thing that really changed. Um, and then the overheads and hat and ride and all that were uh, 5100s as well. But basically, everything else on stage was Audio-Technica aside from some tom mics. So, And then for vocals, were you 6100 wireless all the way across the board? 6100 wireless for Johnny. And then there's not only, you know, a main, but there's a backup. And then there's not a wired 6100 downstage. We would have used it if had somebody not stolen it recently out of my mic pack. I don't know where it got stolen from, but it's definitely gone. So there's that. And then um, Dan and Mark are on 4100s. So a step down from the 6100 but basically just for a little bit different coloration you know on yeah. their vocals so yeah i've heard nothing but good things about the customer service from audio technica i don't know if you know eric rogers or not uh he does front of house he was se slash front of house for godsmack and then saint Asonia, and now he's out with tanya tucker but he raves about the audio technica stuff and as a result i bought a couple of their mics including 650s and i like them i, I think they're really great yeah um, I don't know Eric personally, but obviously I've seen the name around and heard the name, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, there's, like I said, like I, you know, if, if you get a hold of Roxanne, you know, she'll take care of you. She'll talk to you, you know what I mean? And she'll, she'll do what she can to, to obviously gain your trust and, and business and everything like that. So, you know, it's, and it's always a good time. She comes out to shows too, and she'll come and rock with you. So it's fun. <laughs> she's, she's a really cool lady. That's for sure. Yeah. A lot of times that relationship is almost as important as the actual equipment. If you buy a really great piece of gear and you need help and there's no assistance available, you know, what do you do? So yeah, exactly. That's why I'm grateful for the Roxanne's and the, the Sean's and the people like that, that are always near their cell phone, always able to help out and respond, you know, and, and get you out of a jam. If you're in a jam, no matter how deep or, uh, shallow it might be. So yeah, most definitely. What was your favorite part of the tour? Would you say I'm changing gears on us here? So, uh, thinking back over the tour, what were some of the highlights for you? Oh man. Um, I think 
one of my favorite parts and people thought that maybe I was a little aggravated about it or whatever and people they tried to get my goat with it or whatever it was kind of funny and I and I love Steven too and I knew Steven was making signs you know and doing stuff and I thought the signs were funny I didn't care you know what I mean like I think it's and I told him I said hey man you're gonna turn me into a YouTube sensation or something and as soon as I'm a millionaire from it I'll thank you you know <laughs> so I don't care you know and I thought I, I thought those were funny um i think one of my favorite parts about tour is always just like the reconvene with people you know what i mean no matter if it's in your camp or if you've toured with people before like i've toured with um the atreyu guys before but not necessarily atreyu and brandon and uh kyle when they were doing uh brandon and kyle's side project hell or high water I've also, you know, toured with and and in asking Alexandria. So it was great to see, you know, Steven and Devin and all those guys, you know, my favorite part, I think about tour this time was actually Vegas, which is kind of funny because we went and did some different things in Vegas than we normally do. Um, we went and did like that neon sign tour. That was pretty cool. They had like all the old, like vintage Vegas signs and stuff from like the casinos and everything and hotels and everything back in the day, which was super cool. Um, that was a really, really fun day off. I'll say, um, I always love New York too. Cause I always love to go get good food and stuff like that in New York. It's always just, it's a thing. And, and Ryan and I have a couple spots that we always go to just cause it's just, it's like a staple of doing it and then we'll do other stuff too. And I think another major, major, major highlight for me with this run was actually getting to tour with Andy. Cause I've known Andy for the better part of probably 15, 14 or 15 years. And I've never toured with him. I've toured alongside. Well, no, I shouldn't even say alongside him. I've toured, been on tours where we've gone to festivals and Andy's been there and other camps, but never actually like gotten to tour with him. So that was definitely an experience. Yeah, I've only gotten, so like of all of us that are, that are touring guys that I, you know, cut my teeth with from St. Paul, Minneapolis will say, I've only gotten to tour with two of them and I've gotten to tour with Anthony. And I've gotten to tour with Andy and that's it. So as far as like the rest of them, I have not had a chance to do so, but you know, I think that that was actually a huge, huge highlight for me. It's a lot of fun. I've got to try to get Crow on the podcast too, but that guy's always so unbelievably busy. I don't know if I'll be able to wrangle him for an hour <laughs> yeah. or so to sit down and chat. I, I mean, you might, I mean, as soon as he hits the road with chains, I don't think so. He's going to be pretty swamped this whole fall, I'm sure. But you know, so. yeah. That's coming up pretty yeah. soon, I think, because uh, Will, yeah. the drum tech from Asking Alexandria, is going out with uh, Breaking Ben on that tour. So he'll, I'll check in with Will and see when that starts exactly and try to sneak Crow in if I can. Yeah. Yeah, and going back to the signs, uh, people who might not have seen on, on social media or whatever, I'll try to paint the picture because we do have listeners all over the place. But uh, one day on tour, all of a sudden – this sign popped up in the backstage area that said, do not trust this man. And it had a, just Ross's head on there. And then the next day there was one that said, Ross hates kittens. And it had like Ross's head next to a, like a meme of a kitten, but there was like emoji fire and stuff like that around it. You know, what actually spawned that too, is I think it was when we were in Oklahoma city, uh, Steven had a sign posted that he'd handwritten on the outside of the production door that said, no Ross is allowed. 
and I went up and just crossed out the no and and <laughs> blacked it out <laughs> and then he wrote on it again and then I wrote on it again so then he just started making laminated signs <laughs> that was the best part they were laminated on top of it. I know I know it was hilarious yeah uh and for people not familiar Stephen Stephen Poole is the tour manager for Asking Alexandria so uh you guys obviously had a history of yeah. knowing each other and sort of goofing around and uh yeah yep. it just turned into this epic the signs would just pop up in the most random places and it was always a different sign and so yeah i think one said make america ross free again <laughs> something like that that one that one made it onto a video wall in alabama yeah, as, yeah it did yeah it did because alex came up and put it on the video wall. he goes what do you think about that and i go you're just making me more famous dude just keep doing it <laughs> the fact that you embraced it too is oh yeah all the best and even though asking had to drop off of the tour um if people weren't aware Danny the lead singer from asking developed a an infection in his throat and that spread into his lungs and his ears and it just wrecked havoc on his system so asking Alexandria had to drop off and I was fortunate enough to be asked to do front of house for Atreyu so I jumped off of the asking bus onto the Atreyu bus and stayed on the tour but even when asking wasn't on tour the signs still continued to appear so I have a feeling Stephen passed the torch somebody else in the camp and uh the the signs were still up so it was uh yeah he gave them to ryan <laughs> and ryan's got no problem giving me crap so you know it, it's all mutual though you know so people that don't tour always ask me you know like what's the best part of touring and and it's the stuff like this you know like yeah doing a show is is unbelievably fun there's a lot of stress associated with it but at the end of the day it's fun but it's more of like the the human side of things and the joking around and, you know, just never knowing what you're going to run into or what sign you're going to see or, you know, all that yeah, fun stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What nickname you might get and so on. So. Yeah, yeah, kinky Steve. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, we had we had we had like a whole story drawn up about you after we named you Kiki Steve. Like you had your own road case, your own quarter pack, just full of like some some weird stuff, and you just don't want to open it because you just you know you just don't open that case. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've got. <laughs> I try not to laugh on the podcast too much because I don't like my laugh, but uh, that did make me laugh genuinely. <laughs> so the backstory on that too is. Uh, I got a nickname back in the 90s, Geeky Steve, and I got it. It's a long, long story. I got it from the FBI back in the late 90s, and it's not a very interesting story. I worked for a state agency that reported crime data to the FBI, and we had a ton of Steves in our office. And the FBI, when they would call, you know, to get a – we were sending them reel-to-reel tapes back in that day. So in the late 90s, they were still accepting this data on tape, and – inevitably the tapes would have an issue so i'd have to do a run again for them or something like that but they'd ask for the computer geek and then that turned into geeky steve but somebody on tour misheard the name as kinky steve and holy cats did that grow legs and just run your nickname was ruined after that <laughs> yeah yeah so now i'm gonna have to get a different domain name and you know <laughs> different friends and things like that so yeah yeah. Some bondage tools, you know, all of it. <laughs> we'll leave that up to the imagination. I'm not going to comment one, one way or another on that. 
Uh, but anyways, yeah, so a fun tour, even though it had some uh, twists and turns and uh, some unexpected things happen. I, I think all in all, it was a, a pretty successful tour. Nothing more. You guys killed it. You know, every single night, once it went from a co-headliner to a, a headliner, you guys continued to just like nothing phased you. You know, it just went on and, and was really amazing shows each night. So I was thrilled personally just to be able to watch every night and be a part of it. So, uh, yeah, that was that was fun. Yeah, most definitely. What do you got coming up? What's what's coming up in the near future for you? So I actually leave Thursday to go do three festivals uh, with nothing more. And then uh, so we're doing we have Rockfest, Upheaval Fest, and then Incarceration this weekend. That's a great run. And then I come home, I think, Monday or Tuesday. And then uh, I'm actually home until August 22nd. And then we leave with In This Moment after that. So we'll be going out to do a support run with In This Moment. Sweet. Uh, I should mention we're recording this in early to mid-July. And so Rockfest obviously comes up like starting July 15th or something like that. Yeah. And I'll actually see you at Upheaval. I'm, I'm working the stage that you'll be on. Nice. So that'll be fun. I'll get to maybe I'll put a sign up before you get there. Nice. Yeah, do it. <laughs> I just ruined the surprise, but I think I have to do it. <laughs> I mean, it better be good, though. You better top Steven, you know. <laughs> I had those those are some uh, big shoes to fill, so I'll, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> How long is the uh, In This Moment run going to be? Uh, eight weeks. So oh, wow. we actually, yeah, it's actually exactly eight weeks, too. So we leave August 22nd, and we come home October 22nd. Or I should say, at last day is October 22nd, so home the 23rd. Crazy. Is that uh, all U.S., or are you going U.S., Canada, any other countries? I think there might be a couple Canada dates on it, but it's mainly U.S. Well, I think we're coming up on time here. We're just just under an hour, and I like to keep those at an hour. So, Ross, thank you so much for joining. It was no problem. really a pleasure getting to tour with you and get to know you, and I'm going to add you to my uh, bank of friends here. Uh, maybe I'll even open that quarter pack for you at some point and let you take a look. <laughs> Hey, I mean, I don't know if I want to see in there, but you know, I might want to see in there just to see what you got, Steve. You know what I mean? How strong <laughs> <I heard> stories. <laughs> how strong is your stomach? And keep in mind there are some things you can't unsee. Yeah, well, you know, if I, you know, I don't know. I, I guess I got nothing for that. I'm pretty blank right now. <laughs> I, I sort of surprised myself with that comment too. So let's just end it on a, on that note as uh, good or bad as it might be. And, and uh, <laughs> I'll see you next week. Okay. All right. Sounds good, Steve. Thanks, man. And that's a wrap on this episode of Mix Masters. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please be sure to subscribe and then tell a friend. Or maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd certainly appreciate it. I produce Mixmasters on the Allen & Heath DLive system with Shure microphones and a little help from Apple's Logic Pro X and some Waves SoundGrid plugins. One more round of thanks to Merritt Goodwin for the music. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, and thanks again for listening.